Welcome to Trial Lawyer Review. My name is Jason Lazarus, your host. This podcast is for and about trial lawyers. We'll tell the stories of trial lawyers who go to battle every day in courtrooms throughout the United States for injury victims. And this will be about their stories and about their practices. Trial Lawyer Review is brought to you by Synergy Settlement Services. Synergy helps trial lawyers focus on what they do best by dealing with the difficult issues at settlement like healthcare lien resolution, Medicare compliance, public benefit preservation, and complicated settlement planning issues. Uh, in full disclosure, uh, my day job is CEO of Synergy Settlement Services. Um, my guest today is a person that I call a friend and a phenomenal trial lawyer, Sean Dominic. Welcome to the show, Sean. Good afternoon, Jason. How are you today? I'm awesome. So yeah. before we get into uh, into a lot of the, the substance of today, can you talk a little bit about your uh, law firm and your practice? Absolutely. We're a nine-lawyer firm based in Palm Beach Gardens, Florida, but with a practice that's not only statewide but nationwide. Um, I myself focus on medical malpractice, nursing home, catastrophic injury cases, um, my partners also handle bad faith cases uh, and trucking cases. Now, I know uh, you're a family man, so uh, let's talk a little bit about family. Um, with three kids, uh, incredibly successful practice, and we'll talk a little bit about your involvement with AAJ. How do you, how do you find balance between that and being a dad and, and your family and the demands of, of this profession? I think it's a, really comes down to organization and a family that supports me and understands what it is that I have to do in order to do the things that I do. And so I have a fabulous wife who has uh, her own life and um, is somebody that supports me in everything that I do. I have kids that are, are wonderful and they've you know I grew up as a lawyer going to first Florida Justice Association then Academy of Florida Trial Lawyer events and retreats and now AAJ my family has always come with me so part of it is making sure that I have included them in what I'm doing so that for example if I say to them oh I was here and I was with Jason Lazarus they know who it is that I'm talking about it's not just somebody who's an abstract name or an abstract face uh, to them. It's somebody that they know and there's a connection and that makes it much easier. The other thing on a day-to-day -day basis, of course, is when I am at home trying to be present at home and not back at the office, it's one of the hardest parts about, I think, what it is that we do is flipping that switch, walking in the door and not being a lawyer, but being a, a husband and a dad. Yeah, you know, I mean, having having been in this industry for 20 years, what what I always found difficult was disconnecting from the realities of what we deal with. We deal with, you know, tragedies a lot of the time and, you know, it, it makes you appreciate what you have, but it's also sometimes hard emotionally to disconnect uh, from that and, and actually really be present with your family. Well, there, there's no doubt. I mean, there are days when we have 
heard about or been part of or worked with some of the worst suffering imaginable, whether it's a, a child who's burned over 95% of their body or a brain injured baby or somebody who suffered a stroke uh, and is now brain damaged and wheelchair bound. And, and you're dealing with that every day. But I, th I think that um, a couple of things. One is when you come home and you're sort of feeling the weight of that, I think you have to be honest with your family about what it is that you went through that day and tell them that you need your, a little bit of space and a little bit of time. Um, you know, it's funny, I live close to my office, maybe six or seven minutes. Most days that's great, but on those certain days, it's not a long enough drive home to decompress and, and, and do that. So you have to be honest with your family uh, about those things. And the other thing is that you just, you have to recognize how lucky it is that, that we are uh, with the lives that we lead and uh, the families and the support that we have and go home being grateful. Yeah, no doubt. So pre-COVID, I know you spent a year traveling the world with your family. Why did you decide to do that? Sounds amazing. Uh, I love the idea of that, but logistically, gosh, sounds crazy. But why did you do it? And how did you continue to maintain your law practice while you were traveling across the world? Well, it was crazy. <laughs> it was a sort of really out there thing, especially when we did it, which was back in we, we came up with the idea in 2011 and left in, in 2012. And so, yeah, and then we're gone. My wife and three kids were gone for nine months. Um, I, it, and the reason we did it is I've got great kids, but, you know, school is sort of designed to suck the joy of living out of, or learning out of our, out of our kids. And so you, I think as parents, so many of us kind of go through those things that, that you go through there. And so we finally said, we got to do something a little bit different. We got to do it. And we just, I, I can close my eyes and remember standing in our, our family room and looking at each other and looking at the kids and saying road trip. And we said, that's what we're going to do. And then we were like, oh, wow, are we really going to do this? And so we realized we needed to start telling people we were going to do it so that we would be held accountable to actually go ahead and do it. And, and we had always traveled. It was really a big part of who we are as a family. And so we had always sort of saved things from different places about where we'd want to visit and things like that. So, um, you know, we, we, we realized that we couldn't go everywhere. So we decided we were going to do Europe and in the Middle East and in Africa. And then, of course, you know, things being what they are, the, I was... Uh, I had a tobacco trial that was supposed to start two months before we were leaving. I'd try that case. Boy, perfect timing and, and go. Well, of course, what happens, case gets continued and it gets continued to the date that we're supposed to leave, August 24th. And now I'm faced with two things. I tell my 85-year-old client, go ahead. You know, we're going to, we got to continue this case and it's going to be another year before the court gives us that much time on its calendar. And who knows whether you're going to be alive or dead, or you have to do what we do so often. You end up making personal and family sacrifices. So, of course, we say, I say, I'm going to try that case. And so Kelly and the three kids got on a plane and flew off to Russia together. 
And so I didn't then see them in person for another two and a half months. But thank God for FaceTime. Yeah, it's I mean, you know, obviously this profession is is a is a big commitment and you've got you've got to always try and balance all of that. But it's an incredible adventure that you guys were able to yeah. embark upon. So it's great that you you actually were able to do it despite the fact that you've got to try cases in between and come back and and deal with the practice of law. Yeah, this was right when Skype was really coming about and we didn't have Zoom back then. Or, or Microsoft Teams or any of that type of thing. But um, most of the time we were eight or 10 hours ahead of where we were here in the United States. So I would, in order to make it work, I had to keep working. And so I would wake up six o'clock in the morning, I'd work for a couple of hours, then we'd go do whatever we were gonna do during the day, I'd come back, work for a couple more hours. We'd go to dinner. I'd come and I'd work for a couple more hours. So I was still getting six or seven hours of work in every day. And with Skype, I had a local West Palm Beach number. So nobody knew I was calling from, you know, the, the plains of Africa or, or from Amman and Jordan or wherever it was uh, that we might be. I remember sitting on a, we, we'd rented an apartment in Florence and it was two in the morning in Florence. I'm sitting on the kitchen floor doing a Skype call with an expert out in California. You know, it was two o'clock California time uh, that you're doing. So you, you do what you have to do in order to make something like that work. And we were able to do it. What I tell other people is you may not be able to do that and not that type of a trip isn't for everybody, but whether you do, but there's something like that that's right for your family. And there isn't a day that goes by that for our kids or for, for my wife and myself, that some component of that trip doesn't pop up for us. So it was, it was such an incredible opportunity uh, to do it. And you know, sometimes you just have to grab that moment uh, and, and take it. And so we did that and it was the greatest thing we've ever done. Yeah, well said. I, I know that you and I both share this this same belief in leadership i've really focused my career on being a, a thought leader and leading in my industry and and started back when i was in college and law school uh, in in various leadership positions but i i know you've taken a lot of time out of your career to be a leader in the fja and now the aaj why is that so important and what does it mean to you? You know, it, they don't tell us in law school that if you're going to be a person who represents people who are terribly injured due to the neglect of someone else or the carelessness of someone else, that you are going to end up spending your career fighting political battles just to be able to help them. It is one of the few practices where every day what we do and our clients are under attack, either in Washington, D.C., or in state capitals uh, across the country. We're facing it right now uh, here in Florida and, and across the country where they're trying to create immunity for all of these businesses who failed their customers or their employees during the COVID crisis. And so you can either sit on the sideline and let other people do the work for you. You can jump in and work. And I was taught you know, when you see something that needs to be done, you jump in and you do it. 
And uh, so that's what I've always done. I've been fortunate having mentors in my life as a lawyer who were dedicated to the cause and, and instilled that uh, in me. And so uh, then you realize along the way that as you see things happening and how it is that you would do them if you were making the decisions. And so then you either have to step up and lead or let other people lead. And you just have to follow and got to be quiet. And I don't, I don't do really good at being quiet. <laughs> yeah, I, I do know that about you. So be, being in line to be the president of AAJA, what kind of demands does that place? I mean, I know right now you don't have that, that full responsibility yet being in line for it, but I'd imagine that it's still demanding. And then what's to come is incredibly demanding on your time and on your, your practice as well. It is. It's, it's a six-year track at AHA from the initial officer's track up until your president. So it's not quick. And each year, the, the commitment gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Obviously, if you're going to run to be an officer for the National Trial Lawyers Organization, you're already committed and spending a lot of time. But now you redouble those efforts, and then you redouble those efforts, and redouble those efforts uh, over time. So um, again, it comes back to being organized in how you deal with things, making sure that you set aside discrete time periods to deal with the different things that you have to do. Because if you just sort of do it willy-nilly, you're not going to accomplish very much. So it's a matter of having good teams around me to support what it is that I do, whether it is my staff or the lawyers that work with me, that work on my cases along with me. You just have to have uh, find as excellent of people around you that you can possibly do and put them in positions to succeed so that I can do the things that I have to do. But it takes a tremendous amount of time. It, it is There is not a day that goes by that I am not working on something related uh, to AAJ. But it's an incredible opportunity for you to give back to the profession, a profession that you love and something that you enjoy doing, right? Oh, no doubt. No doubt about it. Life is always, you get out what you put into something. So, uh, and I, and I look at AAJ like that and, you know, it's, it has enabled me to create friendships, not just around the country, but lawyers around the world that are members uh, of AAJ that I've become close with that I never ever would have had an opportunity to meet. And there isn't a town in the United States that I can't go to and know that there isn't somebody there that if I pick up the phone, they'll do whatever it is that they can to help me uh, if I have a deposition there or need some something filed there or whatever it is that you may be. So you've got this nationwide law firm of friends and colleagues who are all cheering for each other's success. And we all understand uh, the battles that we have to face. And we work together to take on the forces of darkness so that we can help our clients. It's tremendously rewarding. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's the incredible power of AHA and FJA and, and all the different trial lawyer associations across the country is it gives you the power of almost an unlimited law firm because you've got so many lawyers that are willing to pitch in and help out other lawyers to make sure that ultimately uh, the, the means of justice are served, which is pretty, pretty interesting and pretty cool when you're, when you're part of that. 
oh, it's it's incredible, and you've seen it. You're a part of it in, in so many ways, and the way that that plaintiffs' personal injury lawyers will share information and do whatever they can to make another lawyer better at what it is that they're doing. I mean, you know it, you've seen it where lawyers at two o'clock in the morning that are in trial will send out a, a, I need help call. And within 30 minutes at two in the morning, 10 lawyers will be responding to them, giving them what it is uh, that they need. I don't think that there's any other aspect of the law and I'd be hard pressed to think of any other business where people who are competitors are such colleagues and are so together and sharing what it is that they've done in hoping for somebody else to succeed because we all know that each other's success becomes our success and somebody else's failure becomes our failure. We are truly all in this together. Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, that was what led me to write the the book I wrote and what led me to want to do a podcast and, you know, participate on the listservs and do all that is it's it's just it, it, it's part of what I believe in is is leading in that way. I mean, that is that that's why I wanted to ask you about this leadership thing, because really it's it, it is an incredible thing that you see in this area of the law, which I don't think is present anywhere else. I, I agree with you. And, and I think that part of that is you've got to be a giver and not just a taker in order to be a leader in these types of, of things. And we've all seen it where there are some people that all they ever do is ask for help and they never give the help. And the, and the people pretty quickly identify them. The amazing thing is people still help them. Because yeah. again, we want everybody to be successful. Uh, but um, I've always looked at it like, I need to deposit four coins before I try to take one coin out. And so I try to help as much as I possibly can help uh, people. And, and it's, it's fun and it's, it's interesting to me to have some of the discussions that we have sometimes about esoteric issues or sometimes about things that really aren't, don't really directly affect my practice, but nevertheless are really interesting to discuss and to see how it is that we can help people and teach people how to look at things from different ways than they might normally go about looking at things and remembering what it is that you're trying to accomplish. Because one of the things that we as trial lawyers can do is we can get caught up in things that really ultimately don't matter to the bringing our case to its proper conclusion. And you can spend all this time and energy fighting over something or going down this alley it really isn't going to affect the outcome of the case. And all that does is one, it slows down the true progress of your case. And two, we don't get paid by the hour. So spending a hundred hours on something that isn't going to be, make us any money makes no sense to me. So that's a skill to learn as a young lawyer, you know, as a young plaintiff's lawyer, there are two things that are true. Every time somebody calls in with the case, we say, this is a great case. And we take it. You, you haven't learned yet about how to discern what is a good case uh, and what is not a good case. And the other is learning not to fight every battle and learning to know when it is that a defense lawyer is setting up these straw men for you and they sit back and enjoy watching you do that. And it means nothing to them, to you at the end of the day, but, and they're making all the money off of it because they bill by the hour. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so let's back up. Uh, 
I don't know about you, but neither of my parents even went to college. So me going to law school was definitely not something ha that I'd been raised with. How did you how did you wind up becoming a trial lawyer? What what led you down that that path? You know, all I ever wanted to do was be a lawyer. I don't know why that was really truly uh, what it was that I wanted to do. Nothing else. I wanted to be a lawyer. It took me a while to understand that this was the area of law that I wanted to be in. I was fortunate. Uh, you know, Rich Newsom. Uh, Rich and I were in law school together, and he was talking about this law firm down in West Palm Beach. Uh, it was this phenomenal law firm, and so I ended up applying for a clerkship there and got to got to to do a summer with the Cersei Denny firm. And you know what what better place to have your eyes opened to what the, the practice of of plaintiff's personal injury is in terms of how to do it the right way, how to do it with passion, with integrity, and all of the things that. Uh, Chris and the lawyers in that firm bring to the table. So once I did that uh, for for a summer, I knew that that was what I wanted to do. So after you get to law school and and you get out into practice, what were your experiences like as as a young trial lawyer? And you know what made you continue to stick it out even after you've got the legislature coming after the practice early on in your in your career? Well, you know, when I first started, uh, I came out and I, I knew that I needed to get the trial experience, that that was really the, the pathway uh, to what it was that I wanted to be. And I knew that starting with most plaintiff's law firms, jumping into trial was not something that was going to happen. It just it, it doesn't work that way. So I started off doing defense work and sometimes, you know, better to be lucky than good. And so the way the firm I was with was set up was it had a partner, a senior associate, and a junior associate, which would be me, in each little pod and work on cases together. Well, a couple of months after I started, the senior associate in my pod left the firm. And so her caseload fell to me. So within about 15 months, I got to try 23, 24 cases. So I was just... And some, I, I, you know, I didn't know what the hell I was doing with some of it, but you, st you finally start to learn uh, along the way. And I think that, you know, the hardest one was learning about what jury selection is all about. Why am I doing that? And that we could spend hours talking about uh, that type of, of thing. And I finally really learned that when I met Jerry Spence and talked to him a little bit about it. But um, so I had that tremendous opportunity. And then, um, I was like, I was ready to go and do what I knew I wanted to do, which was represent human beings. Uh, and, and so I, I switched over and uh, hooked up with Pat Ford down in Miami. And that's when we started doing nursing home cases, doing medical, primarily medical malpractice and nursing home, about 50-50. And our firm and Jim Wilkes, and there was one other firm over on the West Coast of Florida back in the early 90s that was really focusing on doing nursing home cases. And, uh, you know, this was uh, the heyday of it. The nursing homes were all insured. Um, we could get fees when we won. So that allowed us to take on cases where somebody had been wronged, but maybe the physical injury uh, wasn't that great that we otherwise normally wouldn't be able to take on. 
And so that really, uh, that experience was very formative for me. And especially there was this one nursing home that my, we were practicing down in Miami. And there was this one nursing home that we had so many lawsuits against over pressure sores. And ultimately that nursing home said, this is crazy. And so they hired a special nursing home pressure sore task force that they created for their facility. And all of a sudden our cases dried up against them because they had taken steps to prevent these terrible things from happening to their residents. And I felt, wow, here's a direct line between me doing something and really enacting positive change to protect people and make the place in the world a little bit safer. And that's a pretty darn good feeling to have. You know, it's, it's funny. I have that conversation with people all the time, and I'm sure you do as well, that, that aren't familiar with personal injury law and what trial lawyers do, but there are things that as a trial lawyer, you, you change the world. You make it a safer place. Could be products, could be nursing homes, like you just suggested. I mean, that's a, that, that's an incredible opportunity. Is that what led you sort of to find your niche ultimately in, in doing the, the medical malpractice cases? It, it is, uh, it, it, it was really, one, medical malpractice cases are such an intellectual challenge. Each day, it, it is, you're going up against neurosurgeons and, uh, you know, OBGYNs, people that have 10 or 12 years of schooling in their field. They are, they're smart as can be about stuff. And here I am, I'm just a, I went to public schools and have a finance degree, and I'm taking on these folks with medical malpractice uh, cases and, and it but it really like I said it was such an intellectual challenge and it was so rewarding when you start to see that you are making a difference in places and that that people that that healthcare practitioners and hospitals and nursing homes are really changing what it is that they're doing in response to what it was that we did to them and that's what accountability is about. I, I, you know, certainly for our clients, the money is important, particularly if you have a brain damaged child that needs a lifetime of care. Uh, but right up there with all of our clients is, they say to me, I don't want to have to have another family go through what it is that we went through. And so, um, you know, when, when you can be a little bit about that type of change, uh, you know that you're doing something good. Thanks for tuning in to Trial Law Review. You can find more at trialrevue.com and look for more episodes and more content coming in the future.